Father, you're so, you're so good to us, O oh Lord. Better to us than we deserve, God. Lord, we thank you that um, you sent your son to be a propitiation for our sin, O oh God. Lord, we thank you for your spirit to be our helper and our comforter, O oh Lord. And God, we need you this morning as ever, O oh God. Lord, we need your help to love you the way that we ought to, O oh God, to see your word and understand your precepts, God, to see that they are good and that you are good, O oh Lord. So, God, that we ask that you would help us today, God. Lord God, I ask that you would help me to speak to your people as we teach this message on marriage, God, to speak to your people with clarity, to glorify your name, O oh God, and to bring out the truths about this glorious institution in a way that would magnify you and glorify your love and your kindness toward us, God. So help me today, God. I pray the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart are acceptable in your sight. Dear Lord, you are our rock, our redeemer, and our stronghold. It's in the holy name of Christ we pray. Amen. All right, so <clears throat> those of us that were here last week will remember that we talked about um, marriage. Obviously, we are 13 weeks. This is week two of marriage core seminar. And last week, we talked about the purpose, the power, and the paradox of marriage. So um, can anyone who was here last week briefly summarize, if you can remember, what the purpose of marriage was? Sorry, to glorify God. Well, we actually, the way that I expressed it, he just summarized it. The way I expressed it was uh, that marriage, the purpose of marriage is a key way in which we recognize the glory of who God is and represent and reflect that glory to others, our spouses, our children, and the world around us. And then we also talked about the power of marriage, right? Does anybody remember that? Can you summarize what that was, how we talked about that? Somebody other than Minas? <laughs> Nobody? All right, so the power of marriage is found in the differences between men and women. And we saw that in Genesis 2.18, uh, where the Lord made woman a helper who was fit for man. And we talked about last week how that meant that it was corresponding to man and how it was not possible for men to fulfill the purpose for which God made them without women. All right, so the power of marriage was found in the differences. And then what about, does anybody remember how we talked about the paradox of marriage? What do you remember? You want to summarize it for me? It's good, notes are great. Okay, so the paradox of marriage is that while... Uh, a marriage is different. Uh, men and women are different. I'm sorry. Husband and wives are different. And that those differences are good. But at the same time, it's those differences that kind of drive us crazy sometimes. Amen. We talked about that in that. So one of the challenges, the great challenges of marriage is to live in this space where the differences, where we see the differences as good. Right. We see them as good and complementary. 
And at the same time, we simultaneously, we try to form this one flesh union where we see our differences as complementary and work together to try to glorify God. That's where the, the, the beauty and the difficulty comes in at the same time, right? We have to work very hard to try to see where these differences are good, but at the same time, it's those differences that make it difficult. And so that's the paradox of marriage. The paradox is, is that it's those differences that are good, but they also make it hard at the same time. All right, so also last week I very, very briefly mentioned that there were three tools that would help us build these type of God-glorifying marriages. One of them was the roles, that the, the different distinctive roles that the husband and wife play. The second one was communication. The third one was physical intimacy. So today, this morning, we're going to talk about one of the first of these roles, which is uh, the roles of the husband and the wife. So the husband and wives, they f- we follow distinctive paths in our pursuit of this unity, this oneness within a marriage, this one flesh union to the glory of God. So this means we'll be discussing the husband's role to lead, to protect, and to provide, and the wife's role to follow and submit to him and to help him and do so. So that leads us to the first point on, or the second point on your handout, which is true freedom. So what the Bible teaches about marriage is radically different than what the world teaches about marriage, okay? What our culture tells us about marriage is foreign to what the Bible teaches. So, and it is the conviction of this church that all that God teaches in his law is for our good and for his glory, amen? So, and as it relates to marriage, we should not think that our marriages, that in our marriages that we are subject to these annoying and oppressive rules that God gives men and women. That's not how we should be thinking about the scriptures. That's not how we should be thinking about God's laws and precepts as it relates to marriage or anything else for that matter. So we should believe what James 1.25 says regarding what the Bible teaches on the role of men and women on your handout, you have it there. James 1.25 says, The one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So James says that the one who listens, who hears, puts into practice what he has heard, this man or woman will be blessed. Okay? Furthermore, God's laws, God's precepts, his rules, they do not enslave. They are not meant to enslave us. They are meant to be burdensome, but rather they are characterized by what he says here is uh, freedom or liberty, the law of liberty. So in other words, what God teaches in his word about the distinctive roles that husbands and wives play, whether it be in Genesis or Ephesians or anywhere else in the scripture, They are part of what James is listing here is the law of liberty. So this law, it may sound like a contradiction because, you know, law sounds, the word law sounds restrictive and liberty sounds like freedom. However, it is only sound, it only sounds like a contradiction when we view it, when we look at it from a worldly perspective and not a biblical one. So So when the world uses the term freedom, right, 
what the world means is freedom from any constraints whatsoever, right? And they means freedom to pursue whatever you want, freedom to pursue whatever you desire, uh, and freedom to do whatever you please whenever you want to. That's how the world defines freedom, right? And as it relates to marriage, the world would say you have the freedom to marry whomever you want. You uh, can stop being married for any reason whatsoever, right? Um, you can uh, run your marriage however you want. Uh, you should pursue any dream. You should, uh, even at the expense of the entire family, that's what the world teaches us. And then so, But this freedom that the world defines it as freedom uh, generally ends up as just another form of slavery. Because what ends up happening is you just, these people, just, you just become in bondage to your own sinful desires and your ungodly passions. So they call it freedom, but it's truly, it's not truly not freedom. So in reality, God, through the loving sacrifice of his son, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, he redeems his people and provides us with the freedom to pursue what we were truly made for, and that's to glorify the to glorify the Lord. So hear what the word of the Lord says. Romans 6.18 says, And having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. In John 8.34, the gospel of John 8.34 through 36 says, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever, the sun remains forever. So if the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. So to, to, to be saved is to truly be free, right? To be free from your passions, to be free from your lusts, and to be free to now obey the Lord and to truly live a life that can glorify the Lord. Amen? So as Christians, Jesus has set us free from sin, free from the slavery of your own sinful desires, and free to be sons and daughters of the Most High God. So when James encourages us to look into the perfect law, the law of liberty, he is encouraging us to find in the law what it is we need to have true freedom, to be what God has truly called us to be, and to fulfill the purpose that God made us for, which is to ultimately to glorify him in everything that we do, thought, word, and deed. And we, we're able to do that through obedience to the law. Does that make sense to you? I'm, I got the, I'm getting the deer in the headlight looks from some people right now. All right. So as we look at God's teaching on marriage, what we should be doing is we should be thinking, this is the law of liberty. This is, we're free. This is freedom, right? This is true freedom. And as we look at this teaching on marriage, we should share the same attitude that the psalmist had in Psalm 119 when he said, your testimonies are a delight. They are my counselors. And you are good and you do good. Teach me your statutes. We should not be thinking, how can I do what I want to do and still like make sure I'm obeying God? Right? That's not the attitude that we should have when it comes to any of God's law, but in particular when it comes to marriage. And also, we shouldn't be thinking anything that, how can I just do just enough to make sure 
that I'm not sinning and not getting church disciplined. That's not how we should be thinking about the law of God. We should be thinking the law of God is good. It comes from a good God, and he knows what's best for us, right? So we should be thinking, Lord, I trust that everything you say is good, everything you say in your law is good, therefore everything that you have, every role that you have laid out for us in marriage in your word is therefore good and good for us. Amen? That's how we should be viewing it. Yes, sir. Well, nobody else is going to be able to obey it, right? It's going to be burdensome. The law, the use of the law for the unbeliever is to drive you to Christ, right? That's it. To drive, it's going to, the law, it can't save you. It can't save anybody. It's just going to bring misery to an unbeliever. It's just going to, because all it's going to do if they're not saved is going to show them how much of a sinner they are. That's it. That makes sense to you? All right, um, <clears throat> so if you leave here today, I want you to remember one thing. If you only remember one thing, it's that God is good. God is good, and God's design is good, right? It's not merely correct. It's good. The way God made marriage, the way he shaped it, is good. Right? It's just not something... We should not be looking at it as something that we just got to deal with, right? It's not something that we just got to suffer through. It's good. Amen? Because his design is good, we should be eager as Christians to conform to that design because it comes from a good God. So some Christians um, approach God's design in marriage and then they try to, they see it, they see what the Bible says about it, and then they try to do hermeneutical and mental gymnastics to conform it into what they want to do, all right? So whether it might be some career goal or a parenting goal or just to maintain some kind of personal control, but that's not trusting God. That's not, but if you do that, that's not trusting God, and that's not believing that God is good. So and then other Christians will see marriage essentially as nothing more than a contract, right? That just, they'll approach it like, just tell me the rules, tell me what I got to do, and I'm going to do it, and I'm good. You shouldn't view it that way either, right? That, again, you're not trusting God. And then other Christians even still will say maybe um, they saw some failed marriages around them from quite often from people who were self-professed Christians. And they have very poor exam- they had very poor examples of how a man should lead his family and how a marriage should be shaped. And their goal now is to not ever be that. That's not trusting God either. Right? If you had a poor father... Your goal should not be, I don't want to be a poor father. Your goal should be, I want to be what God has called me to be in a father. And the same thing, if you saw a poor marriage by people who were self-professed Christians, you shouldn't, your goal is not, I just don't want to be that. Your goal should be, I want to be what God says marriage has designed to be. That makes sense to you? Right? 
the reason why that's so you gotta be you don't want that is because if your father was an F and all you're shooting for is to not be an F, you're gonna shoot, you're gonna end up with a D minus and think you're doing a good job. Right? But your the goal, the design is to be what God has called us to be in these relationships and these roles. Right? And beyond that, within God's good design for marriage, there is a tremendous amount of freedom. And for that reason, all marriages will not look exactly the same, right? Every one of us in this room is going to have a sinful tendency toward either legalism or antinomianism, right? Every one of us in this room that's a Christian, you're either going to lead toward being legalist or just pure freedom. You're going to lean one of those two ways, or maybe you may be vacillating between the both of those. Okay, <laughs> right? That's because by nature, by nature, without the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we will see God's design as nothing more but a set of arbitrary rules, right? But it's not until you come, the Lord has changed and transformed your heart, and you begin to truly see God for who he is, will you see his design as good and trust him and see his commands as good and trust them. Amen? So with that being said, well, let's look at this design, this good design. So that's, that brings us to Roman numeral three on your handout. Different orientations to the task, to the same task. Different orientations to the same task. So for the woman, that's a, a helper fit for him. And for the man, that's to hold fast to his wife. But the goal in both of those is to glorify God, right? It's just each, each party is just has a different, a distinct way of, of doing that. So as we saw last week in Genesis 127, marriage is focused on a basic task and calling that is at the center of what it means to be a human. What it means to be a human is God made us for the purpose of glorifying him. Marriage is, a, is one of the tools that we use to do that, Right? That is, that we reflect, represent, and recognize the glory of God as those made in his image. And what this means is that men and women are equally made in the image of God. They're equal in dignity, equal in worth. There is no human being who is worth more than another human being, no matter their gender, no matter their stage in life, and no matter whatever position they happen to be in. You wouldn't think that we would have to say that, but we do. Then we get to Genesis 2, right? Genesis 2 is, a, is somewhat of a retelling of Genesis 1, but it has a greater focus on Adam and Eve. In Genesis 1, there is no difference between the men and the woman in terms of it, uh, value, but now with the focus being turned up, we find that a husband and a wife will have different orientations to this task of glorifying God that we saw in Genesis 1, 27 and 28. So we see that these two phrases that we looked at, um, the first one is in Genesis 2, 18, which is the Lord made a helper fit for him. And then the second one is in Genesis 2, 24, which is for the man. A man will leave his family and hold fast to his wife. In these differences, we find 
That's where we get the idea, the concept of the shape of marriage. That's how marriage is shaped. These two different distinctions. So let's look at these differences in order, in, in order as, Gen- as Moses gave us to him in Genesis. So I'm only, I'm only picking on the women first <laughs> because Moses said it first. All right? <laughs> so it says, a helper fit for him. We find that in Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now, um, what this means is, is that Eve was created to help Adam in the task of glorifying God. We said last week that man was incapable of accomplishing his task on his own without woman. And we made, I made sure that I was not talking about in the context that we live in. I don't mean individual men. I mean hu- males, human males, without human females, cannot accomplish the task, generally speaking, overall, without women. Right? Also, uh, we need to be sure that we understand what the Word of God is saying here and that we don't import our faulty definitions and understanding into the text. All right? So when the, when, the, when the Bible says the word helper, you need to make sure you're defining it the way the scriptures do. Uh, Psalm 3010 says, hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. That's the same word that's here in Genesis 2.18. Behold, and then Psalm 54.4 says, behold, God is my helper, the upholder of my life. And then Hebrews 13.6 says, so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. Okay? So this word translated helper is most often used in the Hebrew Bible to describe God as a helper of Israel. So this is a strong, powerful language, strong, powerful imagery. God as helper is the same word that Moses uses to describe Eve. So many of us, like I said, we saw poor examples of marriage by self-professed Christians. And rather than measuring what we saw against the word of God, we just accepted it. So when we hear the word helper, we think inferior. That's not, what the, that's not how the Bible is presenting it. Okay? Specifically, the Bible says she's a helper who's fit for him. She, men and women are of the same essence. And she's complimenting him. Right? She comp- man, woman compliments man. She's a helper who's corresponding to man. And as I mentioned before, this is not a weak term. Being a helper involves strength, strength. It involves intelligence. It involves wisdom, courage, and compassion, right? Think of the role that Priscilla and her husband played in instructing Apollos in Acts 18, 18 uh, 26. It does not mean that a wife is inferior to her husband in any way. Rather, they're both created in the image of God. And it does not mean that a woman merely exists to please men. That is not what that means. God did not make women simply for the pleasure of men. You did not get that from the scriptures. Okay? She exists to serve the Lord and to glorify the Lord. And the path through which she does that, if she's married, is through serving her husband. 
You understand that? So to help flesh out some of the implications of this term, I'm going to make two observations. One, first, that it is a characteristic of Eve's whole life. It's just not something that she, would, that she does every now and again, right? It's her orientation to life now. And so sometimes we talk about the role of a wife or the role of a husband. And so in marriage, and that could be misleading, when we talk about roles, because a role is something um, that you do sometimes and other times you don't do it. There's never a time I'm not a husband. There's never a time when Lori's not a wife. You don't ever stop being a husband. Until, until she dies or I die, I'm always a husband. She's always a wife. Okay? So being a fit helper as a wife isn't limited to these big decisions that you make. It's an all of life, all of time calling, right? When you go to find a job, you go to find a job as a married woman, if you work. When you have children, you have children, you better be having children as a married woman, right? Those, like, those kids are y'all's kids. Those kids ain't just your kids. And then his kids, when they're bad, okay, they're both of your kids together, right? So whatever you do, you should be thinking, how is this part of being a suitable helper actually helping my husband? Okay, so whether it's raising kids, whether it's if you have a job or not, how you build friendships in the, in the neighborhood, Whatever it is you're doing, you should be thinking, Proverbs 31, how is this for the benefit of the family? How is this for the benefit? How is this helping my husband? How is this helping my husband in order to glorify God? Right? So the language that Moses uses here is more of, we should be thinking in more of identity versus roles. Okay? So this is huge. This is humbling. Uh, a suitable helper is your identity. It's who you are. If you're a married woman, you're a fit helper. That's why, God, that's why God brought you into marriage. And that means that when a man and a woman get married, they make a different adjustment. So if you're, not, if you're here today and you're not married, understand what you're getting yourself into. Right? Understand what you're getting yourself into, ladies. So God has oriented the task that he gave, so he, okay, so men, God has given us a particular role, right? And then to, in a particular distinct pattern of how we should glorify God. He's given a different, distinct one to women. And then when we get married, we still have the responsibility to glorify God, right? But how we do that is probably going to start to change some, okay? So, I would submit that, depending on how your family's set up, sometimes it's going to feel like the wife is doing more, giving up more than the husband would. She's going to feel that way. Because if he's working, let's say, let's say uh, you're, you're not married, and you're working, and the man's working, and then you get married, and then you have a kid, 
and you have another kid, and you decide to stay home, your life's going to completely change if you, if you start to compare it to his. I mean, he's relatively doing the same stuff. His address changed, right? So it's going to start, it may feel like, from the wife's perspective, I gave up way more for this, for this marriage than you did. She's probably genuinely going to feel that way. And then the husband's going to be like, no, I didn't. I can't even watch the game no more. I got to talk to you now and all this other stuff. I got to give up a whole lot of stuff. But it's not the same. Okay? So depending on the background, she's going to truly feel that way. And it's true that both parties give up something. Right? But it, it looks different for both parties. So if you want to be a wise husband, take some advice from Uncle Corey. Okay? You should need to honor what your wife has done and cherish her for it. Okay? Honor what she has done and cherish her for it and vice versa. But we'll do that. We'll talk about that later because it's going to look different. Amen? The second observation is that this difference in orientation implies a difference in authority. So the man is primarily oriented to the task, and the woman is primarily oriented to her husband, okay? He leads, she submits. I know that's a dirty word in, the, in our society. Nevertheless, it's in the scriptures. God said it. It's good, right? So Paul develops this idea in Ephesians 5.22. Um, he writes, wives, submit to your own husbands as unto the Lord. So I want you to consider something as you listen to this for a minute, okay? First, the Bible says she submit to her own husband. That doesn't mean she's supposed to submit to every man in here. Every man in here does not mean, to, yo, women, you're not supposed to be submitting to every dude in here. Okay? That's submit to your own husband. Okay? And if you at home, submit to your father. Okay? If you're a member of a church, you should submit submitting to elders. That looks different. It's not the same. Doesn't look exactly the same. But you're not responsible to submit to every man in here. Sheila is uh, Marty's wife. She ain't supposed to be submitting to Christian like that. And if you got that uh, funny idea in your head, you need to take that somewhere else. You did not get that from the scriptures. Okay? The Bible says submit to your own husband. Okay? And, she, and the word is, it's a hubatasso, it's voluntary submission. Right? She's supposed to voluntary submit. Okay? That's why it's for her, to her own husband, because she voluntarily married him. Secondly, as I said earlier, we must understand that these authority dynamics have nothing to do with differences in value or worth between men or women, okay? The world, of course, is going to tell you the exact opposite. The world is going to say um, that submission means inferiority to men. You got some people who try to flatten everything out and they believe in egalitarianism and say that there's no difference between men and women at all. That's why this whole authority thing is wrong. And then you got other people who say, well, if you teach uh, submission and the women are inferior, and they're both, picking a fight with the, they're both picking a fight with the text, okay? There is an authority dynamic in marriage, husband, and then husbands and wives have uh, equal dignity and worth, okay? That's just the way that it is. So uh, third, you want to notice about this why submit to your husband 
as unto the Lord? Is it just that? You should be submitting to your husbands as unto the Lord. Part of any person's obedience to Christ is to submit to whatever earthly authorities he's ordained. Right? And for a wife, one of those earthly authorities happens to be her husband. Supposed to submit to the government as long as they are not doing anything tyrannical against the word of God. And you should submit to your husband as long as he's not telling you to do anything that's, that's violating the word of God. She, and you should be submitting because she trusts Jesus. Right? She knows that while her husband isn't, yeah, we're idiots sometimes. Okay? Men are stupid. We do dumb stuff. Amen, men? See, they're not going to tell you that. I'm going to tell you the truth. We don't do smart stuff all the time. Sometimes y'all have better ideas than we do. And sometimes we are full of pride. Right? That is a true statement. But that's not why you submit to us. You're not submitting to us because we're smart and brilliant. Okay? That's not why you're submitting to us. You're submitting to us because the Lord said you, you should be submitting to us. And just as, a, just as an appoint, just as an aside, even if we were perfect, you wouldn't submit to us because Jesus is perfect and you don't perfectly submit to him. Okay? So that's just an excuse you're making. Okay? Jesus has called her to follow this man and his leadership is going to be imperfect. Right? But you have a rock-solid promise from the Lord that he will redeem even the failings of a bad husband. He's going to redeem it. That's Romans 8, 28. All things work together for the good of those that love Christ Jesus. Right? He's going to redeem that. He has promised you that. Now, men, that's not an excuse for you to be an idiot. Okay? We'll talk about that later on, right? But ladies, his poor leadership, and it's going to be poor at times, is, does, is not an excuse for you to not do what the Lord has said. Amen? So fifth, Ephesians 5.24, she is to submit to her husband in anything. Once again, this is not a sometimes role but an all-of-life orientation, right? He's going to do, he's, he's going to have bad ideas that are not sinful. Do you understand that, ladies? Ladies, do you understand that? He's going to have some bad ideas that are not sinful. You're going to have some ideas that are better than his, and they're not sinful. What are you supposed to do? Tell him he's being a dummy and Submit. And when it mess up and it fall apart, you know what you're supposed to do? Go to sleep. I told you not to do that some dumb stuff anyway. Let me know when it's fixed. No, don't do that. <laughs> you're going to want to do that. <laughs> but ultimately, it's his responsibility. Right? And if it's not sin, it's on him. It's, if it's not sin, it's on him. You understand what I'm saying? It's worth noting here that all of this is rooted in Genesis 2, right? Which describes how things existed before sin entered into the world. The, the fall is in Genesis 2, or 3. What we're talking about happened in Genesis 2. No sin was involved, right? 
So the difference in orientation and authority are what, we sh- are what should make up the shape of a godly marriage. You can't say that this, you, you can't say that this uh, uh, hierarchy, or I'm sorry, not hierarchy, but this authority dynamic only happened because of the fall. That's not true. Okay? So in the New Testament, whenever questions about marriage generally come up, Genesis 2 is where they point back to as an example to, to, to give the framework or the foundation for it. Right? So what this means is, is that in Genesis 2 is paradigmatic of every marriage across time and across cultures. Okay? That's not to say that sin doesn't warp or abuse these differences. That's not, that's not what I'm saying but we must understand that this is God's good design for marriage. And if you follow it, it will eventually lead to freedom. Amen? So, here, just, I'm going to stop for some questions here pretty quick, but uh, I just want to give you a couple points of applications real quick before I do that. Uh, married, unmarried women, you need to ask yourself this question. What is it going to take for you to prepare for this role, right? What is it going to take for you to prepare for this role? If you talk to most of the men around here, the older men, and you ask them, what does it take to be a husband? He's gonna go bang, 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 bang. He's gonna give you a list of 10 things, like not even trying hard. Ladies, what does it take for, to prepare yourself to be a godly wife. If you can't answer that question, you're definitely not ready to be married. Not, you're definitely not. One of the mistakes we make in the Christian church is we see a young lady, she's 18, she goes to church every week, she's nice, she ain't running the street and acting all crazy, we just assume, oh, that's, she's ready to be somebody's wife. Don't do that to your son. Don't make that assumption, right? If she can't answer this question, if you can't answer this question, what does it take to prepare yourself to be ready for this role? You're not ready. Because our, our culture is encouraging you to be fiercely independent rather than to orient yourself around the family and the husband. Okay? And if you're thinking about your job, your relationship with your parents, about the fact that you want to get married and undergo if you haven't thought about these things and, and you've got this culture screaming at you, independence, 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 you're going to wreck some man's life. Okay? And if you're dating according, you should be thinking, is this man, is this man doing with his life something that is worth me reorienting my life to him? Okay? Is he right now, while he's not married, is he right now glorifying God with his life without me? Right? And how can I come alongside him and help him do that even better? Now, I'm not talking about his career. I'm not talking about how much money he makes. Okay? What I'm talking about is what is he doing with his life as it relates to glorifying God? And you should be asking yourself these questions, ladies. Does he love the Lord? Can I trust his leadership? Does he right now, while he's not married, give his life to others? Okay? Or does his world revolve around him? 
Because it's only going to get, he's a selfish fool now, it's only going to get worse when he get married. Okay? And a husband should use his authority to serve, not to be served. Okay? So are you seeing this man you're considering as your husband? Does he, when you look at these questions, is that what you see in him? Right? Is that what you see in him? And for the married women, biblical submission requires a lot of you. It requires a lot of you. Living under the leadership of a man is a challenge. Okay? It's a challenge because we're sinners. We fail all the time. Some of us more than others. Husbands are not perfect. Husbands are going to mess up. So you're going to have to look to the Lord for strength and hope because you are married to a fool. <laughs> you know that, right? Every one of us. You know how I know how Matthew and Wally and Christian and every other man in here. You know how I know they're a fool and how big a fool they are? Because the Son of God himself had to die on a cross to redeem them. That's how big a fool they are. They're not just little fools. Okay? That's what you married to. And you picked them. Okay? So you need to call on the Lord for strength and hope. And do not do it alone. Do not do it alone. You have some older women in here who've been married to some big fools too for a really long time. Okay? And they, and they can help you. And you need to talk to them and get, to, get some help for them and stop thinking you can do this on your own. I say this all the time. You have an God has enlisted a, an entire army to help you. Only a fool would try to do something by themselves. Why would you do that? Why? My grandfather used to tell me this all the time. You do not have to get the same scars that I got. You don't have to do that. There's some women that's been in this church married for decades. And you don't have to make the same missteps. Just go talk to them. Just go talk to them. So, I need you to Married women, listen, to consider how many strengths and virtues God has given you as a part of your calling to help your husband glorify the Lord. It's given you many strengths, many virtues to do that. You should not be looking at that role as something inferior. Amen? Number two, ladies, make it a burden, not a joy for your husband to lead you. I'm going to say that again. Make it a, do not make it a burden. Do not make it a burden. I'm sorry, I said that wrong. Do not make it a burden. Okay? Make it a joy for your husband to lead you. Deliberately encourage your husband when he shows leadership in areas that are important to the Lord. If he does something that's important to the Lord, encourage him in that. Okay? Especially if you're newly married, right? Because it's not just a husband's sin that makes his leadership less than important been perfect. It's not only sin. So, like I said, we don't lead perfectly, but it's not only just because of sin. It's because men and women are different, and I don't know you if I'm just married to you. 
I don't know you that well. I still got to get to know you, right? And so in, in many ways, it's only through being married that men, like, you get to know yourself. You start to find out how selfish and how ridiculously uh, self-centered you are when you get a wife, right? You don't start finding out some of this stuff until you start getting children. I'm about to tell on myself right now. It was times when my baby girl, she'd be crying, and I'd hear her, and I'd be laying in the bed, and I'd be like, man, I'm tired. I'm just going to pretend like I'm asleep, <laughs> right? That is wicked evil, right? And then the Lord convicted me of that, and if I would have never had a baby, I would have never found that part of me out. So all I'm trying to tell you, ladies, is, is that part of the reason is sin, and part of the reason is, is that he don't know himself yet. He still, the Lord gave you that man. The Lord gave you that man because he, there's something in you specifically that's going to sanctify him. You understand that? There's something particular about you, ladies, you individually, particularly something about you that's pulling out something out of him that God is exposing so he can put it to death. And that's why God sovereignly chose that woman for that man. Okay? And so another reason why it's hard for us to lead sometime, ladies, is because y'all say crazy stuff like, you should just know what I'm thinking. I don't know where y'all got that from, right? Or you'll say something like, if he really knew me, like, why would you say that if you really knew me? Because I don't really know you. I'm still trying to figure all of this out, right? So wife, if you're a wife, you would do well to encourage your husband's leadership. And it's going to look awkward sometimes because he don't know what he's doing. And on top of that, he's a sinner. And you ain't the best at communicating. Okay? So encourage him. And over time, by the grace of God, he'll get better. Amen? Also, ladies, recognize that it will take several years for your marriage to take full shape. Okay? It's going to take, take a while for your marriage to take full shape. Um, one day, you, you, so you stood up one day and you just got married. And some of y'all are going to get married with the false expectation that when the preacher said, I do, everything's going to be perfect. That y'all just going to fit together like a glove. That's a lie. Right? It's going to take time for you to, the way he, his leadership and your submission to him, and it's going to take time for y'all to work all of those things out. Right? And when these, and, and that trust, it's going to confront the marriage, and it's going to take a while, and you got to be patient, okay? And you got to communicate and trust God to work out those differences, amen? And again, husbands, honor and cherish what your wife has done and given up to be in a relationship with a person like you. Any questions? So you talked about, like, not all decisions are sinful decisions. And you also talked in day one the idea that understanding sin is bigger than necessarily a, a list of rules, but mm -hmm. like doing it to the glory of God. Mm -hmm. So I wonder if, like, 
I think it can be very easy to like say, oh, it's not a sin thing, it's not not commanded. Sure. But oftentimes, maybe a man's leadership, his intention for making decisions, have nothing to do with the Lord in it. That's right. How would you recommend like a wife to approach that? Because it won't sound like sin. Sure. Right. So, if I could summarize the question, there are things that we do or decisions that we can make that aren't necessarily in the scriptures, listed in the scriptures, don't do this, and therefore sin. But anything that we don't do in faith, the Bible says is, is sin, right? So there could be some decisions that he's making that I'm not going to be able to open up a Bible verse and say, look, this is sin. But nevertheless, is his sinful desires that's drawn him in that direction what what kind of decision is she supposed to make well again that's going to be one of those things where if you got some wisdom from some older married people if he knows the lord and hopefully he's being discipled by somebody and he can listen to reason you open up your bible and you show him and you explain to him what your concerns are. And if he's a decent husband, he's going to listen. So we're going to talk about this when we talk about what leadership actually is. Okay? Leadership is not just, I said it, woman, do what I said. No. That's tyranny. Okay? Men, you have complete boulder rocks in your head if you're getting ready to do something and your wife is telling you that's not a good idea and you don't listen. Okay? If you just immediately dismiss what your wife is telling you, she's seeing all these red flags because we got blind spots, and she's seeing, hey, like, I'm seeing something here that's not good, and she's a godly woman, and you're not listening to her, something's wrong with you. You got big problems, brother. The Lord gave you that woman to help you, and if she's trying to do that and you just dismiss it, you got big problems. Hopefully I'm answering your question. Okay? So these things are not going to be like checkbox answers, right? So did I answer you? We could talk about this some more later. Yes, ma'am. I just add to it. So I think that you're, what you're saying is right. And then I think for the wife, they need to pray. And if he still does it, you need to submit mm -hmm. and not keep bringing it up because if it is something that's a preference, then you need to submit to your husband and trust God that he's going to work it out. Right. Because it causes a lot of problems if you won't do it. Yep. And many, many times, Marty, I have said right. to Marty, you're going to do this and this, and whatever the consequences are, I have to go along with it. Right. I have to deal with it. I have to suffer through it. I ha and he's like, that's right, baby. You're coming along with me. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Right. It's just the way it works. We have to learn how to accept that as a wife. That's right. It's not easy. No, it's not. That's why I said what I said earlier. Like, submission is not an easy thing. And men ought not think it is. Right? Everybody has worked for a stupid boss before. Have you not? Have you not had a supervisor that was a complete fool? Have you not? Well, that's you sometimes. 
And that's what you do to your wife sometimes. And that's why you should listen to her. Amen? Second, this is where, so we, now we're down to Roman numeral. Did I answer your question? Okay. I was kind of going all over the place, but hopefully I... All right, so now we're on uh, Roman numeral five. Hold fast to his wife. How am I doing for time? Um, let's turn, okay, so the second phrase is he will hold fast to his wife. So God has given uh, a job to the man in verse 15, chapter two. If I don't get through this, I'm gonna finish this next week, okay? Um, to work and keep the garden. That's Genesis 2, 15. That is, he's to provide and to protect. Protecting and providing isn't just a general admonition applied to the creative order, but is especially, he's especially supposed to do this toward his wife. Okay, again, Paul picks up this unique care for his wife in Ephesians 5 when he says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. So this isn't to say that wives aren't supposed to love their husbands or hold fast to their husbands or sacrifice for their husbands, but there's a difference in priority and power when a husband does this, specifically because of his authority in the marriage. So that, so let's say when, so we'll see what Paul says here about what it means for a husband to hold fast. So husbands are to love their wives just as Christ loved the church. So a husband's leadership be, should be the same as Christ's self-giving, sacrificial love, which led him to the cross, right? So, now, in one special sense, in one sense, I should say, it's not special because Jesus said we're supposed to love everybody, right? And so many of the problems that we face in marriage is because we simply just fail to do the one another commands that the Bible says to love one another. Well, we're supposed to love everybody around us, but there's this uniquely focused way that husbands should be loving their wives, okay, in marriage. So, for some men, what this is going to mean, for some, very few in this case, loving your wife will literally mean laying down your life for your wife, physically. Sometimes it may come to that. Burglar breaks in the house, you die first. Men, you're a special kind of coward, okay? If somebody is physically assaulting somebody in your house and you put your wife in front of you, you're a special kind of coward. Okay? So for some men, it's going to mean physically you may have to put your life at risk for her. Okay? But for all husbands, it means swallowing your pride. It means actively building up your wife spiritually. And it, you have to do this at all times, even when you're exhausted. Being tired is not an excuse. Okay? You cannot use being tired as an excuse to not do your duty as a husband. Don't be tired. You know what you do when you suppose you know what you do when you get tired, men? Don't be tired. That's what you do. Just don't be tired. Okay? You should be prioritizing her preferences, her non-sinful, non-lustful preferences and desires over yours. Okay? And some of us need to get a backbone. Okay, because happy wife, happy life is from hell. That's from the pit. Okay, sometimes your wife is going to want something that's sinful, and sometimes she's going to want something that's stupid, and sometimes you got to be man enough to be like, I love you, but no. 
right? And some of, some of us are cowards. Some of us are cowards. We don't like the way our living room couches feel, and we won't say no. Sometimes a man is going to look his wife in the face and be like, I love you, but no, you can't do that. That's dishonoring to the Lord. No. Ladies, listen to me. Y'all been lied to. Y'all been told that a good man is going to give you whatever you want. He's going to always say yes to you. He's going to always say yes to you. But if he's a really good, godly man, and you come and you ask him for something that's sinful, that's going to draw the family's affection away from the Lord, that's going to turn the family further and further away from Christ, he better tell you no. He better tell you, go sit down somewhere and pray. No, we're not doing that. That's not a man if he don't do that. And let me tell you, men, if you don't do that, let me tell you what's going to happen. If you give her what she wants and the whole thing turn into a wreck, you know what she's going to say? I, I, I hate you. Why, would you. why did you let me do that? Right? So be a man. And when she comes and she asks you for something that's ungodly and that's going to turn this family's affection away from Christ, you just lovingly, politely, and sacrificially say, No, we're not doing that. We're not doing that. Okay, I'm going to finish this up next week because I ran out of time. I think we need to finish this, so. Yeah, so when I come back next week, we're going to start on, if you got your handout, keep these handouts. I'll bring some more copies, but where it says, um, good leadership never gets a break, okay? That's where we're going to stop and then next week we'll come back and finish from there, okay? You have any questions? All right, let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your mercy, for your kindness toward us, O oh God. We thank you, Lord, that you didn't leave us in the dark to grope around and speculate about who you are and what it takes to please you, O oh God. We thank you, God, that you revealed yourself to us in your word. You, you revealed to us yourself most perfectly in your son, God. And you had holy men write it down so that we would have a record of what you did to save your people and what your good and perfect will is. So God, help us to believe it. Help us to obey it, O oh Lord. And Lord God, I pray that you would uh, squash the unbelief in our hearts. It's in Christ's holy name we pray. Amen.